You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, and Howard. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Colin, Elias, Hacken, and Tiago. As well as our new quartermaster, Crimson Davy Thunder, and our new Commodores, the crew of the Pitlock Supply Company, and Scuttlebutt. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time I told you that we were going to catch up with Henry Avery and the crews of all the pirate ships that took part in the raid against Mughal shipping in the autumn of 1695. Fancy, Portsmouth Adventure, Amity, all the rest. And I tried. I did. I tried to make it an interesting episode, but... Turns out there's just not much to say about them in late 1695. For those pirates about whom we know much of anything, it's really no story at all. Not yet, at least. They were just gathered around Madagascar, enjoying themselves. There is going to be a good bit of drama surrounding the crew of Amity, but that's not going to happen for some months yet. For now, they're just enjoying their winnings, living lives of ease in paradise. Now that's not the case for Henry Avery and the Fancy. They left Madagascar fairly quickly, may never have even stopped there more than to collect some water, but we don't know exactly where they were yet. Somewhere in the South Atlantic, probably, but they were laying low, they were staying out of sight. No flags were getting raised here, and pleasant voyages in calm weather with chests full of silver and larders full of pork and wine, well, they just don't make good stories. A good time, yeah, but not exciting. 
So while our pirates are busy lounging on the beaches of Madagascar, enjoying their spoils, we're going to return to the story of Captain Kidd. This is episode 228, True Colors. Before the adventure galley sets off and leaves London, there are a couple of things we need to mention. First, and this is very important, there was a clause written into William Kidd's contract with his investors. That clause, because the investors wanted the largest possible return on their investment, limited the amount of the total haul of plunder, the percentage captured from the pirates, that Kidd could legally award to his crew. And that percentage was not a large share. However, in the... London privateering climate of 1695 and 1696, when privateering commissions just weren't getting handed out, it was still better financially than a stint in the Royal Navy. So Kidd didn't have any trouble recruiting there in England, which was a good thing because the pressure was on to get underway. There were those rumors that the French were preparing an invasion fleet, which they were. A fleet of Jacobite soldiers and Catholic sympathizers from all around Europe were amassing under James Stuart. Now, they were never going to make it to England, but it, for the moment, was still a very real threat. And rumor was that ships were going to be barred from leaving England. Any day now, that order was supposed to come down, so William Kidd had to leave as soon as possible. He spent his last night in England in a dockside tavern, not far from the adventure galley, but a tavern popular among the navymen on shore leave. He spent that night swilling rum with Royal Navy sailors. Now, Captain Kidd was kind of a... Well, I'm not sure how to say it exactly. Not, and remain academic and professional sounding. You know, Captain Kidd was a bit obtuse and boisterous, a bit of a blowhard. I'm trying to say that Captain Kidd was a bit of a dick. He spent his night in that tavern, boasting about how he had this letter of mark and bragging about everything it let him do, just throwing back rum and asking every single person who was close enough to hear, oh, do you have a letter of mark? What, no? <laughs> what a sucker. And... You know, this does kind of sound like Captain Kidd is compensating for his failure to get a captain's hat. He wanted that job really bad. He'd come to England searching for it. But he was denied, so it seems like he might have been trying to make himself feel better by showing off his admittedly rare and valuable commission from the king. Now that's obnoxious behavior, absolutely, but Captain Kidd had to just tweak their noses one step farther. He bragged very loudly in front of all of these men of the Royal Navy that there was a clause in his letter of mark, a clause that all English sea captains and port officials give him aid, and this is important language, and respect. Now, what exactly the king may have meant by respect, that's up for debate. Captain Kidd, though, had a unique interpretation of that clause. He thought it gave him license to not 
dip his flags, or to salute ships flying the king's colors. This was not the case. It was law that any English ship, when either entering or leaving a port, was required, if there was a king's ship present, to either fire off a single big gun or to dip her flags in salute of the king's colors, depending on the situation and the ship in question. And on the one hand, yeah, that's about the king, showing respect to the crown, but on the other hand, it was arguably just as much, maybe even more, about respect to the institutions they represented. And here you've got this colonial Scotsman, a man one step removed from a pirate, telling everybody loudly that he owed those institutions and the king no respect at all. And to be clear, he did not have that privilege. He was supposed to salute those ships, but he thought the opposite was true. When his letter of Mark said that they owed him respect, he interpreted that to mean that they owed him a salute. That the king's ships should pay him and his privateer ship their respect. Now how are you going to respond to that? Imagine you were a guy that paid his dues, put in the work, who's spent years in the Royal Navy, in service to his king and his country, when this guy, this kid, starts running his mouth. Now you can't kill him. You really can't even get in a fight with him. There are rules for men in the Royal Navy, especially when in uniform, as these men were. You're going to get reprimanded, or maybe arrested, if you disrespect that uniform by getting in a brawl in a tavern or, you know, killing a guy. But are you going to let him get away with that kind of behavior? Well, for us, you know, maybe. This is, after all, a show about pirates, and you kind of got to respect the moxie of it all, the bravado. And on a certain level, I do. It was, it was bold. But Captain Kidd really does come off as a jerk here. And it looks like word began to get around. The community of captains and Royal Navy officers in London spread the word that this Captain Kidd needed to be brought down a peg or two. And there's some pretty convincing evidence to back it up. This all came up in court a few years later. One of those who testified in that court hearing Jeremiah Dummer would tell the court that the captain of the royal yacht Catherine overheard Captain Kidd's boasting and took umbrage. That the captain made sure that the royal yacht Catherine was out in the Thames the following day and in a location that the adventure galley would absolutely have to pass by. A location that the captain chose carefully and specifically the captain put in at a spot just around a bend in the Thames called Cuckold Point. At that point, just after that bend in the river, one could no longer see or be seen from London. The joke went, and I imagine it was usually followed by some nervous laughter, but the joke went that after Cuckold Point, the wives and ladies of London were free to do as they pleased. It was the first time you were out of sight of London Town, and I think that's why Catherine chose that spot. 
the adventure galley would have to pass her by, and nobody from the city would see what happened out there. Now, Adventure Galley left London just ahead of the orders putting a halt to all shipping. It reads in the sources almost like Captain Kidd weighed anchor while the dock master was unfurling the parchment and drawing his breath to read it out. I doubt it was quite that dramatic, but there was still a very real possibility they would be stopped before they made the sea, so Captain Kidd had his ship moving fast. They had her sails open and the oars out to have her moving as fast as was safe on the river. Now, I want to pause here for a second, and forgive me, but we're going to spend a moment talking about flags. And I'm going to dive right into the weeds on this topic head first. For centuries now, the flag of England had been the St. George's Cross. That's the red plus sign on a white field. But the flag of the crown, the personal standard for whoever sat the throne, well, that was a much more complicated affair. There's the traditional royal standard of England. It's three elongated gold lions on a red field. That goes back to William the Conqueror. But that standard was even as far back as William of Normandy, interposed with another standard, gold fleur-de-lis on a blue background. This represented the English claim on the French throne, also dating back to William the Conqueror, the reason English monarchs for centuries called themselves kings or queens of France. Now, the particular design of that flag changed frequently, but those two symbols were always present, the three gold lions and the fleur-de-lis. When the House of Stuart, in the person of King James I, took the throne in 1603, they changed it up a bit. Since they were a Scottish house, they added the Scottish lion, red on gold, but thanks to the recent English claims on Ireland that really picked up steam under Elizabeth, they also added an Irish harpy. Now, the Irish harpy is cool. It's a Celtic harp, a symbol you'd probably recognize from a can of Guinness, but it's got a bare-breasted woman attached, almost like the harp is her wings. And of course, the harpy is a creature of folklore usually represented as a beautiful bare-breasted woman with wings. I was today years old when I realized that the Celtic harp and the Irish harpy are in fact connected. But if you want to take it a step further, there is a certain theme of feminine rage present in both the Irish harpy and in Celtic history and myth. You could look at Queen Boudicca, or more recently to our story Grace O'Malley, and it's a theme expanded upon by the British-born Irish poet William Congrave when he wrote the famous line, quote, Heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. Now that's a famous line, usually misquoted, but close enough. But that poem was written during the reign of William and Mary, by a popular playwright and a fixture of London society, and a man deeply involved in pro-William Whig politics in the time we are discussing. This is all an interconnected web, Pepe Silva stuff. 
But William and Mary, when they took the thrones of England, changed the royal standard again. They added to the fleur-de-lis, the English lions, the Scottish lion, and the Irish harpy, they added a Dutch lion, the standard of the House of Orange. Now, that old-style royal standard, with the English lions and the fleur-de-lis, usually had four quadrants, two with the English lions and two with the fleur-de-lis. When they added the Irish and Scottish standards, they could have done the easy thing. They could have given one quarter to the English lions, one to the fleur-de-lis, one to the Scottish lion, and one to the Irish harpy, but that's not what they did. This is complicated to explain vocally, but try to picture this. Instead of the neat, nice four-quadrant flag, they took two of those quadrants and added the old royal standard. That means two of those quadrants were split into four. So instead of four nice, neat quarters, you've got two nice, neat quarters and two that are split into eighths. It's... A ridiculous flag, for no good reason, but then William of Orange comes along, and instead of adding his Dutch lion somewhere that makes sense, he just slaps it right in the middle. It's an ugly, complicated flag. The, what they call the Williamite flag. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. All that is to say, I wouldn't be surprised if, when Captain William Kidd saw that flag flying atop the mast of that royal yacht Catherine, he didn't recognize it. Just a big mess of gold and red and blue and, yeah, ugly, ugly color combination. Now that's no excuse, but still, he definitely recognized the other flag she would have flown. The Union Jack. Now, the Union Jack as we know it today would not come into being until 1808. That's when they added the Cross of St. Patrick, the red X-shaped cross of Ireland. Instead, it was just the Red Cross of St. George, counterchanged with the Cross of St. Andrew, white on blue. But even this old-fashioned Union Jack wouldn't come into general use until 1707, with the official union between England and Scotland to form the nation of Great Britain. 
but it was already and had been for some years now flown on every ship in the Royal Navy or otherwise in the king's service. A royal yacht would carry the king's standard, but also the Union Jack, and I guarantee Captain Kidd knew that flag. And when he and the adventure galley came upon the Catherine, he did not dip his colors and he did not fire off a salute. He didn't even bother to slow down. Now the Catherine, a small yacht but well-armed for a time of war, fired off a warning shot across the bow of the adventure galley, you know, reminding him that he has to slow down and show proper respects. Again, from that testimony of Jeremiah Dummer, quote, Kid's men in the tops, he means the rigging, turned up and clapped their backsides in derision. End quote. The men of the adventure galley dropped their trousers, mooned the king's yacht, and slapped their backsides. Likely they were hooting and hollering as well. This was a sign of deep disrespect to king and country. Now, Richard Zacks suggests that while Captain Kidd probably didn't give an order to this effect, his arrogance, his cockiness were a bit infectious. The big question, though, in all of this is whether or not this action made Captain Kidd a pirate. I mean, technically speaking, legally speaking, it did. He wasn't following English law, therefore he was an outlaw on the sea, and thus a pirate. But of course, men can be rowdy, and they hadn't, you know, committed any piracy, so there's a question of intent. Was this Captain Kidd showing his true colors? A common phrase we have, thanks to false flag operations and pirates of the Golden Age, or was this just a bunch of men being rambunctious? That question was going to come up quite a bit in that court proceeding. But the Catherine wasn't the only surprise awaiting Captain Kidd on his way out of England. When the adventure galley reached the Downs, she found herself amidst an English royal fleet. In Richard Zack's words, a forest of masts. This fleet was mustering to meet the fleet out of Calais under James Stewart. Now, Kidd attempted to just dart on by to get out of there as soon as possible without raising a ruckus, but in doing so, he failed to dip his colors. And this time, another ship, a royal warship, fired a shot across his bow. This was under Captain Stewart of His Majesty's ship Duchess. And in this case, there was no way Captain Kidd could make it by without an altercation. This wasn't a lone yacht on the river, this was a fleet. And members of that fleet were already moving in to meet him if he tried to continue on. So Captain Kidd furled his sails and waited. Captain Stewart of the Duchess made his way personally over to the deck of Adventure Galley. Now, it looks like the orders at the Downs were already in place that no ship was allowed to leave. This was not an order by royal authority, not yet. That was still coming down, but it was an order by naval authority. William Kidd, though, did have that letter of mark, that magic piece of paper signed by the king, and he brandished it before Captain Stewart, one 
gets the impression that he kind of waved it under the Navy captain's nose with a smirk and a, a wink for his crew. Still, though, that commission did give him authority to leave England and get about his business. The royal authority outstripped that of the naval authority. But I have to wonder if word of Captain Kidd's behavior in that tavern had reached the downs. It seems unlikely Captain Kidd was moving fast, but certainly not impossible. Whether it was calculated retribution or not, Captain Stewart had a nasty surprise in store for William Kidd. He said that good men were needed for the fleet here at the Downs. They were at war, and an invasion force loomed. Captain Stewart was going to need to requisition the best sailors among Captain Kidd's crew. In the end, he took thirty of Kidd's crew. That left only William Kidd, his brother-in-law, five old men who were of no use to the Navy, and the landsmen aboard. These were the general laborers, the oarsmen, no one who knew how to properly sail a ship. Captain Stewart took all of his sailors. Adventure Galley wouldn't even be able to make it out of the channel, much less across the Atlantic. Captain Kidd was stranded. Now, he sent word back to the Admiralty, and that took time. It took more time for the Admiral, one of his investors, to get around to reading his missive and pinning a response. It seems like the Admiral was stalling here. But when it finally became clear that there was not going to be an invasion from Calais under King James, former King James, Captain Stewart was ordered to return those thirty sailors. But he didn't. By that time, word of Captain Kidd's attitude had definitely spread, and word of his failure to salute the king's ships several times. He was a bit of a pariah among the Royal Navy. Captain Stewart returned the same quantity of sailors, but not the same quality. He gave Captain Kidd the dregs of their fleet. Old men. Syphilitic sailors, scurvy-riddled, physically impaired, and, most notorious of all, behaviorally difficult. We're talking about eye patches, hook hands, peg legs, scars, no teeth to speak of, and every single one a serious addict to rum, dice, and cheap women. The worst bit, though, was that every single one of the thirty men given to Captain Kidd had serious problems with authority. Captain Stewart unwittingly gave Captain Kidd a crew of hardened, rough-skinned, and rebellious pirates. It was a touchy situation, but that crew was more than capable of getting Adventure Galley across the Atlantic and back to New York, which is what they did. Captain Kidd's plan upon arrival in America was to find a new crew of upstanding sailors, law-abiding men who would follow his orders, but he found that on American shores, in New York especially, that was very, very difficult to come by. Next time, Kidd returns to New York City. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. 
Also, everybody who picked up a copy of Washington's War, 1779. It's doing pretty well, well enough, in fact, that they're letting me do another one. I will, of course, keep you all updated on that as it develops. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight